0: The moon, youth, and the Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 Ninth Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to set up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, dot com or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day for the 9th Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. I'm going to ask you, as I begin the lesson tonight, to do something I'm not sure ever asked. A a crowd to do before, but I'm I'm going to ask you to turn to two different passages. We're going to kind of go back and forth between the two of them. One is Mark chapter three, the passage we read together a few moments ago. And if you want to also have a finger or a piece of paper or something, in Matthew chapter twelve, we're going to kind of use those two passages. Mostly Mark chapter three. We're going to go back to Mark, uh, see Matthew chapter twelve. A couple of times as well tonight. And that would be very helpful if you had your Bible uh, open to each of those. Where you could kind of go back and forth with me throughout the lesson. We have spent the Sunday nights this year... In this series that we've called One Word, and I, I again, I haven't done this in a long time, but I want to thank our elders. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you have used uh, the books throughout the year, the devotional books our family has. Uh, we're going to read the ones for this week, this coming week, and we'll, we'll finish that book. I know other families have, or at least have off and on uh, used those books, but the elders made those books available for every household in the congregation, and I appreciate that so much as a way to support what Tyler and I have been preaching on Sunday nights throughout the year. And uh the people who uh, put those books together, I thought, this is just my opinion, I think they did a tremendous job, not just with the book and the layout and those sorts of things. But I was telling someone this morning that I appreciate, and I hope you did as well, that some of the words were very deep, you know, propitiation and atonement and things like that. Some were very practical, mother, father. And I love just that balance, and I've loved preaching those words on Sunday nights, some of them very deep, very theological, some very simple, practical, every day. And I hope you've enjoyed that sort of balance and not really having a series, but having the, the one word concept to hold it all together. But but I did find it interesting that as we close out the year, our one word is two words. Holy Spirit. I don't know why I didn't just call it spirit and have devotions on the Holy Spirit, but we have our only two-word, one-word uh, tonight as we close out 2017. And you may have noticed the passage we read together a few minutes ago is a very difficult passage. And I fully admit that from Mark chapter 3. It's a passage a lot of people struggle with. And we're going to think about that text tonight As it, as Jesus spoke about something near the end of that context that has, that bothers a lot of people. And I know at one time in my life it bothered me, but frankly I just didn't understand it. And it's the concept found near the end of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 3 and verse 29 where he spoke of the idea of an eternal sin. The sin that you can't be forgiven of. Sometimes it's called the unpardonable sin. And that bothers a lot of people. Is there a sin that, that I can commit that God won't forgive? That's a, that's a difficult question and one that can bother us. Before we even dive into the lesson at all, let me say this. If you're here on a night like this <laughs> and you have any concern whatsoever that you have committed an eternal, unpardonable, unforgivable sin, I can almost with full assurance say you have not. And I hope to show you that tonight. We want to look at Mark chapter 3, that passage which we read together a few moments ago. And again, we're going to turn back to Matthew 12 a couple of times throughout this lesson. And we're going to think about it under just two points. We're going to think about, first of all, what is not unpardonable. And then obviously, what is the unpardonable sin or the eternal sin? So let's think, first of all, about what is not unpardonable. Before we talk about what Jesus was discussing in Mark chapter 3, I want us to think about some things that are not under discussion here. And the reason I want to do this is twofold. First, we need to do this because Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, are not all that the Bible says about the subject of forgiveness. As we think about any subject in Scripture, we must do our best to take the totality of what Scripture says about a subject in order to understand it. David wrote in Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth. We don't have all the truth on the matter just from looking at one passage. But when we think about the idea, the concept of an eternal or unforgivable or unpardonable sin, just taking that one phrase can lead people in all sorts of directions. And that's the second reason I want us to think about this subject is because a lot of people have been burdened throughout the years. We, we commit some sin, they commit some sin, and they know it's a sin, and then they begin to question themselves. Is, is this the sin? Is this the type of sin that God cannot or will not forgive them of? What what if I've committed that unpardonable sin? Now, we should never want to sin, but the Bible shows us that God forgives and God forgives when we repent. God forgives when we are penitent and God forgives through the blood of Christ. But a lot of people wonder, what if I've committed that sin? And they've put all sorts of labels. Could it be this? Could it be that? Some of those Some people suggest it's just blasphemy, even though the text itself says in in Matthew 12 that blasphemy will be forgiven if it's repented of. Now, blasphemy basically means to speak against. It's often used to to describe taking God's name in vain or even treating God with contempt. And that may sound like something that can't be forgiven. But may I remind you that the Apostle Paul described himself in first Timothy chapter one and verse 13 as formerly a blasphemer. I think all of us would say that Paul certainly was forgiven. What about, what about murder? Proverbs makes it clear that God hates hands that shed innocent blood. So if someone murders another, can that person be forgiven? Well, think about all of those in Acts chapter 2 who may not have actually nailed Jesus to the cross, but who called for His blood. Think about Paul himself. Whether he actually murdered people or not, I'm not certain, but he certainly wanted them to and, and consented to that. He certainly consented to the death of Stephen and others for certain. Even murder, if it's, for, if it's repented of, can be forgiven. And by the way, if I may insert a, a parenthesis at this point, when we speak in our modern world about that passage from Proverbs, it talks about hands that shed innocent blood. We so often go down the road of speaking of abortion. And abortion is murder. There is no doubt about that. And we need to be bold in presenting that to the world. But may I also remind all of us, we need to be just as bold in reminding people that if someone has committed that sin, if they repent, they can be forgiven of it. We need to present both sides of that to the world. Yes, we are bold in saying it is wrong. But folks, people need hope as well. It can be forgiven. What about the sin of adultery? Our world seems to downplay. It's just an affair. It's just a fling. But God's word shows adultery for what it is. It is breaking a covenant. And it's a covenant that a man and wife make before God himself. So when a spouse is unfaithful, can they be forgiven by God? Well, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9 lists those who commit adultery. And then verse 11 makes it clear that they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified by Jesus. These were Christians. They had repented of that, but they were forgiven of it. What about another sin that's so common in our modern world? What about the sin of homosexuality? That same list in 1 Corinthians 6 also lists homosexuality in verse 9. But these were Christians who were forgiven of that sin as well. Just as the murderer must give up that act, obviously, and just as the adulterer must leave that act, so one who would commit homosexuality must leave that. They must leave that life of sin. But it is not an unpardonable sin if one repents of it and lives for God each day. And again, may I say the same parentheses. We need to be bold in our modern world in saying that, yes, this is a sin. But we need to be just as bold in saying it can be forgiven and one can turn from it and go to heaven what about backsliding? In other words, what about one who puts on Christ in baptism, but then falls away from the faith, begins to move away from Christianity, lets their faith cool off, if you will? Can that person be forgiven? Well, of course they can, so long as they come back to God before it's everlastingly too late, as you often pray. If it weren't the case, if this could be forgiven, we wouldn't have a lot of passages in the New Testament. We wouldn't have Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You wouldn't have Jude, verses 22 and 23, and have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To so others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. And it's not on the screens, but... You know as well as I do, we wouldn't have a whole lot of the book of Hebrews if the sin of backsliding could not be forgiven. And of course, the the list could go on and on. But the fact of the matter is, any of these sins must be repented of. Of course. But if they are, God will forgive None of these things listed on the screens and any other thing we could list a long, long list of is this eternal, unpardonable, unforgivable sin. And so if that's the case, then we come back to our question. What was Jesus talking about? Well, to consider that, let's go back to Mark 3 as well as Matthew 22, Matthew 12. And let's think about what is unpardonable. And we'll do that with two thoughts in mind. First of all, let's think about the context. We need to notice the specific statement that was made against Jesus at this point, if we're going to understand why Jesus would say such strong things as he did. Back up in Mark chapter 3 in verse 22. The scribes would say these things about Jesus. There's two things, but they're connected. First, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And the second is, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now here's where you may want to look at Mark uh, Matthew 12. Back in Matthew's account of this same event, we're told in Matthew 12 and verse 23 that this occurred in reaction to a question that was being asked by the people. The question was, can this be the son of David? But more than that, what led to the question is so important. It was one of the miracles of Jesus. Matthew 12, verses 22 and 23 tells us this. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he, Jesus, healed him. So that the man spoke and saw... And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? And then we're told that the religious leaders heard all this chatter and they threw this accusation out against Jesus. He has to be doing this by the power of Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, and so on and so forth. Those people, those religious leaders knew those miracles. They saw that particular miracle, but they also saw the reaction of the people. And so they gave these statements that it was by, by the power of demons, by dark power, if you will that Jesus was doing these things. In other words, they were saying that Jesus was working under the influence of Satan, the influence of evil himself. And to that, Jesus gave that famous teaching that Kevin read for us a few minutes ago from Mark 3 about a house being divided against itself, not being able to stand. You know, a lot of politicians have used that terminology in the last century or so to talk about America being holding together. That's a wonderful thought, but it's not what Jesus had in mind when he he said it. But we know... That in Mark three twenty six, Jesus made a very powerful statement. And if Satan is risen up against himself and is divided, he, Satan, cannot stand, but is coming to an end. You know, very few in the days of Christ who saw this miracle and all these things going on, very few of them struggled to believe that demons were from a dark or an evil world. And so Jesus was making a very straightforward point to them. If Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan, what kind of sense would that make? That would have had Satan undermining his own power. But the key for us... Is simply the charge that was given against Jesus. That he's casting out demons and doing so because he's under the influence of Satan. In fact, he's possessed by the devil himself. He's working under the influence of evil and all those things. In fact, in the last verse that Kevin read for us a moment ago, you may have noticed that Mark adds a divine commentary for us down in verse 30. For they were saying, he, Jesus, has An unclean spirit. That's the context. That's what's going on when Jesus makes this statement. With that in mind then. Consider what it means to commit the sin. With that as a backdrop. Jesus gives words about committing this sin. Again look at Mark 3. 28 and 29. Truly I say to you. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. But here it is. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, if you have your Bible and you're keeping your finger in another place, go to Matthew 12. Because it's here that Matthew truly provides for us information that is so helpful. Matthew sheds more light, I believe, than Mark does. In fact, I have had trouble picking which one to make the scripture reading tonight. But in Matthew 12, I want you to notice what's said in verses 31 and 32. Therefore, I tell you, these are the words of Jesus, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Now, notice verse 32. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man, Jesus, will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, keep that phrase in mind. That Jesus even says, whoever speaks evil against me, against the son of man, against Jesus. That is, if they blaspheme him, they could be forgiven. But there is something different about this blasphemy or the speaking against the Holy Spirit. And that leads to the question, what is he talking about? And you can imagine there are all kinds of guesses. I want to give you two possibilities tonight, both of which are held by what we might consider conservative scholars, people who love Scripture, who we would agree with in so many ways, both of which are possible. But one of which I believe is more accurate to the specific context that Jesus is talking about. The first possible interpretation is when you think about what they were saying against Jesus, is that the unpardonable sin or the eternal sin is attributing Power that only belongs to God and giving credit for that to Satan. Because they were saying he's casting out demons by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. They even think he has a demon. And so some suggest that what Jesus is saying here is the one who would actually go so far as to say that Jesus was doing something by the power of Satan. They cannot be forgiven. That's an eternal sin. And that is certainly Possible, but is it not also possible that some of those people who said these things were there in Acts chapter 2 and beyond? Is it not at least possible? It's possible. I think there is another view, and again it's held by many conservative scholars, that fits with the context. But not just of Mark 3 and Matthew 12, but with the rest of the New Testament as well. And that is to read these words of Jesus as a straightforward statement, as they are, but also as a warning, which it clearly is. Jesus came to show the Father. People had rejected the prophets. People had rejected the message of of God. People were now rejecting the Son of God. And Jesus came to show the Father. But what if they rejected the message given by The Holy Spirit. How many more opportunities would they have? And the answer is none. They would have no more opportunities. The Holy Spirit would be the one who would guide the apostles into all truth. The Holy Spirit would be the one who inspired the writers to give us what we know as Matthew through Revelation. The Holy Spirit is the one who gave us the word, if you please, who gave us the the word of God. What if someone blasphemes, speaks evil of, contempt of the Holy Spirit? What Jesus, I believe, is saying is when they rejected him, Jesus, that was obviously a terrible thing. But they still would have opportunity because the Holy Spirit, the comforter, was to come, was to reveal the truth. But what if they rejected him? They would have rejected the complete, the final, the full, revealed will God. And for that person, there is no hope because there is no other revelation. There is no other coming of a message. There is no amazing thing that will drop from the sky and tell us to read this instead of scripture. Nothing like that will happen. To those hearing Jesus on that day, they were in the process of rejecting the Son of God. We know that from Matthew 12. We know that from Mark 3. We know it from many other places in the gospel. They were in the very process of rejecting the very Son of God who had come to reveal the Father. But as, as, as atrocious as that is, that they would do that, they would still have another opportunity. But not if they rejected the full message of Scripture given by the Spirit Which is why it is called the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And does that concept not also fit with other things we read about in the New Testament? For example, we read about in 1 John 5 and verse 16, a sin that leads to death. What, What could that be? Could it not be rejection of God's word and no heart to make it right? It fits with several things we read about in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. It certainly fits with Hebrews 10, verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Hang on a second. Where did they receive the knowledge of the truth? From the Spirit who gave it. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now again, I know plenty of people who hold both of these views I've mentioned tonight. This is not, I don't think it's one of those things that's worth, you know, spending hours and hours and hours considering. But I do believe We must make certain that we notice that both of these views are grounded in the fact that these people had a heart that was diamond hard against the way of God. And when that's the case, there is no hope. Now, I know it's New Year's Eve. I know that it's cold. And I know these are deep waters we've been in. This is one of the hardest texts in Scripture, I believe. But I want to spend just a few moments very briefly as we close, to make two points of application. If you get nothing else from this lesson tonight, if you think this was just a waste of 25 minutes or whatever to to dive this deeply into a text that's controversial and difficult, I want to make two very simple points of application about the Holy Spirit, and then the lesson will be yours. Application number one, I need to always remember that the Holy Spirit inspired the writing of Scripture. Those who wrote the Scripture were carried along, borne aloft by the Spirit. It is the sword of the Spirit, as we mentioned a few moments ago. That simple fact reminds us that we cannot reject the Scriptures, or we are rejecting the very Spirit of God. But it also reminds us to honor the Scriptures. And we do so, we are honoring the Spirit of God. We We sing sometimes songs like, uh, Father, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Spirit, we love you. And I remember having a conversation one time. A man I loved. He, he passed away a couple of years ago. I loved him dearly. And he wasn't trying to be controversial. He was asking in a very serious way. Just, he, he asked, should we sing to the Spirit? Should, should we praise the Spirit? Because you don't see that in, in Scripture. You, you see people praising God. See people praising Christ. And I, I began I probably spoke before I should have. I said, well, he is God. <laughs> and this man, wonderful man, a former elder, said, well, I know that. I said, I'm just not sure we should, we should do that. And then I asked him, I said, should we sing songs like Give Me the Bible? Because the Spirit gave us the Bible. And this wonderful man who at that time was probably near 90 years of age, And knew the Bible better than I'll ever know the Bible. Said. I'm going to praise the spirit. Because he brought us the scriptures. It is right for us. To honor the spirit. By honoring scripture. Because he's the one who. Brought it to us. Who inspired the writers. So that we have it. If you get nothing else from this lesson. That's worthy of remembering. But also. By way of application, I want to simply go back to where we began. If there is even a glimmer of hope in your heart tonight that you have committed some unpardonable, uh, eternal, unforgivable sin, you have not. And I believe that with all my heart because those who would say such a thing against Christ, if that's the view you want to hold, or those who would, who would believe that I just can throw away the scripture, you wouldn't be here on a night like this. Because you want hope in your life. You want Scripture to guide your life. You want it to be as the passage we quoted this morning reminded us the lamp to your the light to your feet, the lamp to your feet and the light to your pathway. But may I ask, as we close this lesson, as we close our one word lessons, and yes, as we basically close the year two thousand seventeen, is it time for you to to fully commit yourself to the full revealed spirit given word of God. I can think of no better way for us to end 2017 than by being together for a few moments after we're dismissed because someone was buried in the waters of baptism and we're standing around hugging that person and encouraging that person. I can think of no better way for us to end 2017 than, as we sing this imitation song in a moment, someone coming forward like Sister Tasha did this morning and and asking us to pray with with them, so that we can pray. But then also, when we're dismissed, to stand around for a moment and encourage and hug and be encouraged. I don't know what plans you've got for tonight. Mine don't include staying up to midnight because I stopped that about ten years ago. I'm old. <laughs> But folks, I'd stay up all night long if it meant someone was getting ready for eternity. And I know the people in this room, and I know all of us, will stay a few more minutes if it means we're witnessing someone being ready for when the Lord returns. Is it time for you to commit your life fully to the Spirit-given Word of God? It tells us that the one who would become a Christian. Must believe in Christ. It tells us. That the one who had become a Christian. Must repent. Turn from sin. It tells us. That the one who had become a Christian. Must confess that Jesus. Is the Christ. And the son of the living God. It tells us. That the one who would become a Christian. Must be immersed. Buried in water. Baptized for the forgiveness of his or her sins. If you've never done that. This is the time. But it also tells us. That we must be faithful even to the point of death. And only then will we receive the crown of life. If you've never become a Christian, this is your night. If you as a Christian are not living faithfully, this is the time for you to respond so that we can pray with you, ask for forgiveness, ask for encouragement, and be encouraged by what you've done. Will you come Or we stand and sing to encourage you?